Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. By the middle of 1978, the London-based New Zealand group Split Ends had lost their record company, had no manager, no live work, and next to no money. But they still had belief in the band and their new songs. With plenty of time to write and rehearse, the Ends honed their performance. The music became simpler and was played with more vigour than in previous years. In a tiny studio in Luton, Split Ends recorded demos of over 20 songs to send out to record companies. Those demos, most of which have never been commercially released, were quickly dubbed the Rootin Tootin Luton Tapes. Guitarist, singer and songwriter Neil Finn. Yeah, great recording session really. In a way it was a shame it wasn't like if the band had been in a great environment with a great producer at that time we would have made an absolutely amazing record I think because we were right up for it, you know, just the right amount of rehearsal and lots of good new songs, yeah. Singer and songwriter Tim Finn. We did them all so fast and with so much to prove, you know, that they're a pretty good record of the way the band really was in those times, you know, live and urgent. Drummer Mal Green. We just played our hearts out for a few days and, and we, we got the vibe. And that's when I think Neil started to come a lot more into the picture from a songwriting point of view as well.
Finn's song Carried Away was only briefly in the Split Ends live set and became an obscure B-side years later. Many of these songs recorded at Luton disappeared altogether. Bassist Nigel Griggs. A lot got chucked. You've got to remember most bands are lucky to have one good songwriter and we had two plus all Eddie's own contributions and bits and pieces from me. You know, it's sort of overlooked Eddie's contribution to writing because Tim and Neil are so dominant in that area. But, uh, you know, Eddie's had a huge part to play in all that. And I, I always thought that the, the Tim-Eddie relationship was... Uh, even to this day, I don't know why they don't explore it further because they were really perfect for each other, I thought. Tim had come with all these ideas, but Eddie was great for linking them, joining them, manoeuvring them, encouraging Tim getting bits of his own instrumental bits in for links, for introductions and all that sort of stuff. So I think it was a, it was a partnership that was never probably explored to its full.
know Eddie'd have an al- a, a instrumental or two on each album, but his part in the band was much greater than that. Uh, he, was, he glued everything together. Great musician, always enjoyed playing with Eddie. Never stopped jamming. J- even when the jam's over, you know, still be jamming. Keyboard player Eddie Rayner. I tend to like the ones that are really um, not really very good songs, but show the band in, in all its sort of like flawed glory. You know, um, as time grew on, I just started to love the more jammy side of splitting. <laughs> play and various other things and it rubs off even though we didn't really feel that affinity with the punk movement. The energy nevertheless encouraged us to keep it simple. They'd play everything twice as fast as we would have normally done. Split Ends fan from Manchester, Brandon Liam, befriended the band. He told them about his friend David, a whiz kid recording engineer who wanted to get into production. And I was the ripe old age of 17 at the time, I think. David Tickle. So he called me and said, I found this band, Split Ends. Maybe you can do a demo with them. So I went up to Manchester and met with the band, and um, we hit it off really well. Everyone, including myself, the whole band, we all slept on Brandon's floor in his apartment for like two nights while we met and rehearsed up in Manchester. About a week later, we headed down to Ascot to Ringo's studio because I was the resident engineer and ran the place. Startling Studios was Ringo Starr's house and used to be John Lennon's house and it was like I went there and I was like, oh boy, this is the rock and roll dream.
Percussionist Noel Crombie. It was a residential studio, which uh, for us was often a good thing rather than going in and out every day, you know, to be there. And just the camaraderie too of, of living together like that was uh, always productive for us. Jimmy Percy from Sham 69, they were recording at um, starting at the time and we took a day off that they were having. They were playing some show and he turned up with the Sham Army as they were called at the time, about 25 skinheads all of a sudden. He came in and started producing our session, telling us what we should do with uh, Next Exit and how we could improve it. <laughs> Place. I remember Nige doing his part for Icy Red sitting in his seat by the pool. He just said, oh, I want a really long lead. And I was going, why, Nige? You, know, you want to sit outside. The whole house was actually wired up so that you could record just about anywhere. I recorded the drums in the, uh, the marble front hall of the mansion. And I, <laughs> everyone, I just set everyone up where they felt most comfortable. And Neil was in the control room with me. And uh, we just went for just an experiment all over of what an interesting way to record and a fun way to record. kind of mid-tempo song and the band started playing it one day it was up in Radlett north north of London 
there was a point where it was when my baby's walking down the street. It was kind of, you know, sort of slow and swinging. It just sounded boring. It didn't, you know, nothing was really happening. And so I just suggested to the band that they play it as fast as they could. And I remember him just pushing us to play it faster and faster and faster and faster. He had the idea just to make it more, more punky. Tim was always uh, a bit more savvy. To, to try and keep more in step with what was going on in the music industry, you know, with the punk thing than what we were, than what I was at the time. I didn't give a toss about the punk thing. I thought it was a load of old bollocks, you know. Icy Red was intended to be nothing more than a demo recording, but it ended up being pressed to vinyl in Australia and New Zealand thanks to Eddie's initiative. I was very confident about Icy Red. I remember being the one who actually drove the whole thing of sending the tapes of Icy Red over to Gadinsky, over to Mushroom, for release as a single, because I had a lot of faith in it. I thought, you guys will be really surprised at how well this does in Australia. And I don't think that even the guys in the band even kind of realised that it had, it had been sent over and that it, was, that it was all being released over there. I thought it was great. I thought it was the best thing we'd done. And I thought it would, it would work really well on radio. Mushroom boss Michael Gudinski was impressed with what he heard. Tim had earlier written him a letter saying that Split Ends wanted to have another crack at it, with their former manager John Hopkins back again and with Mushroom Records. Gadinsky reared his ugly head from Melbourne again. He came up, we re-signed with him, we agreed to do another album on, for Mushroom, which was great, really. It was timely, it was perfect. In a celebratory mood, the band left London for a few weeks' rehearsal at the Old Mill House. Mal Green... Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, that was wonderful. <laughs> the Old Mill House was a place up near Monmouth in Wales. And again, what we used to do before doing an album, we'd go to a house in the country, the classic thing, spend a month there, and you can play music whenever you like. Uh, lovely environment, um, rolling hills and babbling brooks. I remember that time very fondly, eh? We were really together as a unit. Nigel was recording all the rehearsals we were doing, all the, just the jamming we were doing, and coming up with these great tapes of all the edited highlights.
all we're doing is jamming. I'm always in awe of that kind of stuff, just how one, two, three, four people start playing, not knowing what anyone's doing, and it goes through, just like a conversation, you can start off talking about headphones and suddenly half an hour later you're talking about the moon, you don't know how you got there, you know. Nigel Griggs, quite often it's suddenly a groove beautifully for maybe 20 seconds and you got a tape of it so you could sort of look at it and say why is that grooving so well oh it's because the kick's doing this and the bass is doing something slightly different and you can just pinpoint all those things a lot of the jams became songs great rehearsal period there and really lots of good songs came out of that period and a fantastic period of time generally for the band and an incredibly good snooker tournament throughout as well. I see Red's producer and engineer David Tickle found to his dismay that he was no longer part of the picture. They knew they were going to make another record coming up called Frenzy which I was really trying to become the producer on and they wanted me to but Michael Gadinsky he decided that I was a no-name producer and wasn't big enough to do the job so they went with someone else Michael Gadinsky from the start I was keen on big names working with them I mean Phil Manzanera from Roxy Music did their first international album and their second album ever so I mean I was pushing them in a direction to try and get that commercial success that we were all so hungry for and you know, often having a big name producer certainly helps. John Leckie came out at the time and was interested in producing us and for some god unknown reason we didn't use him and he went on to great things but he would have been a lot better choice than Mallory Earl. And Mallory Earl came out to Rockfield as well and kind of snow, did a snow job on us. He'd worked with Hendrix so he said. I don't think he made tea for Hendrix or something. Tim Finn. Yeah, Mallory was like scammed his way onto that record really by sort of lying or, you know, exaggerating what he'd done and we were stupid enough to believe it. Gadinsky pushed for Mallory Earl and um, he was quite adamant about it. As it turned out, Mallory Earl was just terrible. <laughs> he was hopeless. The frenzy never satisfies, it doesn't help you socialise, it's all the put it is to get a riot. It's not a dance or a teenage craze, but if you're lost in a it was, it was a nightmare, really. Noel Crombie. Nice studio again. It should have been much better than it was. I don't know, I just managed to make it all woolly and average.
thought it was going pretty well at the time. Uh, but we were staying at this big manor house up in Oxford and wandering around these, these strange haunted old halls with big wolfhounds, size of cows lying around, and it was a strange time. Mallory Earle's tape operator on the Frenzy Sessions was future Grammy-winning producer Hugh Padgham. I was employed as a staff engineer at um, Virgin Studios, and they were booked into one of the studios, which was a studio in the countryside called The Manor, which is a famous studio where Mike Oldfield did tubular bells and stuff. And um, so, you know, I was just stuck on the session as Mallory's sort of assistant. And um, I remember having quite a good time. And But I do remember also worrying that this Mallory producer guy was not altogether sort of knew what he was on about, I think. He wanted to do all his own engineering and... I mean, listen back to the quality of the record now, it's absolutely dreadful. Eddie Rayner. Stuff and Nonsense was a classic. I always knew that song was a really, really, almost like the quintessential pop song. It just says so much in the lyric. It's an incredibly simple melody. It's like three blind mice. And the chord structure and the whole arrangement is just perfect, really. It, it, you know, it's just, the, unfortunately, the production, the sound, the, the engineering, um, 
Uh, nobody seemed to recognise it at the time. And that's what a producer's job is. You take a song, you know, you choose the songs, you do your pre-production, in which we had done. Um, we all knew the song, how to play it. And then you make it sound bloody wonderful. <laughs> and unfortunately, quite the opposite happened. Yeah, well, that's a song that I still play, and people seem to appreciate it that more as the years went by. Belinda Carlisle covered that, which, you know, is something for what you might think of her, but it still was a surprise to get any kind of cover. There's been so few split-end songs covered. But anyway, yeah, that, that song's had a life, and uh, I sang it recently with uh, Eddie Vedder, of course, at Neil's St. James shows, which was great, you know. So it's, it, it's, it seems to be able to be reinvented, that song. Another song called Love is the Roughest, Toughest Game. That song, it sounds so bad. And there's certain aspects of it that are completely misguided. But the song itself, the verses and the choruses are really, really catchy. I'd like to dedicate this next song to the All Blacks because they are without doubt the best rugby team in the world. Yahoo! They could beat anybody. Yeah! And I like every one yeah! of them. driving back from the studios and there was Nigel and me and Malcolm driving back to Radlett where we lived. We'd, we'd held onto our house while we were away and uh, it was in the middle of winter and we had been told by this guy Mr Minty who was the landlord what to do in winter about the pipes freezing and how to get over the pipes not cracking open and uh, flooding the house. Anyway we arrived back 
to our house in Radlett, which was a lovely house. It was a three-storey house. To a team of about ten Pakistanis living in the house who had been there for a couple of weeks because the pipes had burst while we were away and 300 gallons of water had flowed down from the attic down through the three storeys and every room was a complete disaster. There was paint like hanging in strips off the ceiling and the carpet had shrunk about six inches all the way round <laughs> and pulled out of its tacks and stuff and um, and these Pakistani guys had come in with their drying machines to fix it all up and they had decided to set up camp in the house because they hadn't been paid. So guess what, we left them there totally irresponsibly and hopped on the plane, went out to Heathrow, hopped on the plane and sort of hightailed it back to New Zealand. Griggs. England was a mess. We left England and we, in a sense, we'd failed. We'd done nothing in England. Nothing had happened. Everything had fallen and things unresolved and bills not paid and bits of equipment all over the place. And most of those things were in Eddie's name. <laughs> Why was that? Because <laughs> Eddie was the responsible one. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. I remember writing a letter to somebody. I can't remember to this day who it was to saying that, um, oh, look, um, I'll, I'll be taking responsibility for the debts, so any debts that the band incurs, kindly send them on to me. Anyway, I, I arrived at the um, airport, and my name came up in the computer as there being a warrant out for my arrest. <laughs> for some debt. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't arrested. For some reason, I got away with it. The main future was two things. The fact that I actually really done well in Australia, and an ambassador festival in New Zealand. Mal Green. We've gone through such a hard time and suddenly to go back to um, New Zealand was like, whoa, just freedom being let out of jail, you know. I can remember after being in England for those few years, getting off the plane at Auckland Airport and just being really overwhelmed by uh, this thing that they used to talk about, the clear Pacific light and um, how it affected painting in New Zealand and all the rest of it. And uh, I used to always sort of wonder a bit about what the hell they were talking about, you know. And that hit me, like, I remember looking out around and seeing some cabbage tree in the distance, you know, and just seeing every leaf and sharp detail and thinking, ah, clear Pacific light. <laughs> Great to be home, you know, it just felt good. We got to New Zealand, they've all got somewhere to live, but I ain't got nowhere to live. <laughs> and I remember Malcolm and myself, we just literally jumped on the back of a truck and uh, headed off down an ambassador about a week early. And I couldn't believe it. It was just incredible. You know, flower power lived on. It was 1979. And Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Spiritualism. And you are an ambassador. That's really beautiful. The whole thing was an event and experience, uh, apart from ends playing. And uh, we hadn't actually played live for, I think, months and months we hadn't played since we'd done a gig. So... To suddenly come on and headline a massive festival like that was was obviously going to be a big deal. We did some rehearsing over there. I think we arrived a couple of weeks beforehand playing in this hut. 
There was a wooden building with a corrugated iron. It's like one of those classic rural community halls or a, or a classic barn. You know, we were set up in there. We did our practice. Next, I mean, I can remember waking up in the middle of the night in a motel, and I, I hear heard all these sirens going off at three in the morning or something. I don't know car accident or some fire somewhere or whatever and the next morning getting up and being told that all our equipment had burned to the ground anyway we went to um inspect the actual site the following morning and it was sure enough all there was was just some corrugated iron that's all there was left and just a smoldering heap of nothing and the only thing standing was kind of my bent drum stool <laughs> and it's still a bit of a mystery as to what actually happened a shock for me particularly i lost stuff there that i've never replaced you know so suddenly, I think it was just a few days before actually doing the festival, and we're trying to scrounge gear, and we ended up with relatively tacky equipment. It was a major. I mean, I thought, well, I can't play. I mean, I can't get any equipment. I, and I'd always played a lot of different parts and a lot of different sounds on a lot of different keyboards. I had about seven on stage. As it turned out, there was this bloke called Brad Coates who was a keyboard player, and he had an identical setup to mine. I'm not going to say he was an Eddie Rayner fan or anything. <laughs> All that he didn't have were stands, because I had specially made stands. So I instructed a whole bunch of hippies to, um, to make some stands for me. I said, I need some stands. They've got to be this big and this wide. And uh, anyway, these guys made me this, like a mausoleum, out of rough-sawn sort of eight-by-two these huge stands. It was like a construction on stage. Uh, my keyboard sat on top of them, like a pimple on the chin of the moon, you know. <laughs> that Buster 79 was split ends! We went on that gig as unprepared as you could possibly be, and we kind of knew that we had to jam it. Because you can't indulge with your stuff, um, it's just like everybody just let go and we just did it and it was an awesome gig you know we just let it all out the whole year of frustration and because you're working with things equipment you're not used to in your sound so it's like with Eddie you know all of these sounds he's got to do and change he wouldn't have access to a lot of them so he could just clear his head and just go for it first song, there was a huge surge of electricity and every one of those keyboards shorted. Everything stopped, all the sound. I looked down and there was smoke coming out of between the keys. <laughs> so at that point I thought, it's time for me to stop playing these keyboards. I'm going to go and play the piano. And the piano was the only thing that I had that worked, that was left. And so I ended up playing the piano the whole night and guess what? It was the best gig I ever played. Yeah. Uh -huh.
seven things. Eddie just played piano all night, and I always found that exciting. He's such an amazing piano player, and um, it was the first time I'd worked a really big crowd, uh, getting them to do call-response type things, and it was in Boulder's Brass, I think, at the end of Boulder's Brass, I was getting the crowd to kind of yell back and sing back and doing noises and, sc and screams to them, and they'd do them back to me, and it was an amazing moment for me to, to feel that. I I'd done it in smaller rooms, but never in a big big scale like that. Something changed for Tim that day too. I think he, you might say, found a new dimension in which to work with his audience. I think he'd always been a bit shy of his audience to that point, because in the early days it was all that sort of rhyming couplet type approach to it. But I think that gig did a lot for Tim to free him up and that he could do anything with an audience and the power of he could have, and that he was good at it. He was natural for it. Tim was great when things went wrong. You know, it's. Uh, you always wanted things to go wrong. It was like if the worst thing happened, it might be great. There was always that kind of feeling about it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, and children, and anybody who's anything of the other types, uh, we're coming to the last song section of the evening, and uh, we'd like to thank you all. I'd like to thank particularly everybody here tonight, which includes the people who helped us to uh, organise this occasion, because when we, we got a very warm welcome when we came to Waihee. I won't dwell on it because it's history. But we played tonight, and we're glad we did. And, uh, it was a turning point in many ways. It was it was almost like this is as low as you get, and this is a, this is the start of building things up again from that point. And that show was a terrific start to that rebuilding process. And it'll always stick with me. Well, you know, like there's so much of the so many gigs I don't remember one thing about. But Nambas will always be right up there. How how are you? You haven't heard from me yet. Let's rock! Like we've we never done before. Let's roll! Let's see you down the front and in the middle and in the middle and back and then the back. Let's rock! Let's see you move around, number seven. Let's roll! Come on, let's roll on out of town. Fire at home yeah. tonight. Because
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.